Hey, and welcome to the uh, latest episode of Angles, the Anglia Advisors podcast. Today, I'm talking to Alex Magoob, who's a real estate broker here in uh, New York City. Um, and we're going to talk all things real estate, primarily on the purchase side. Um, what should people think about before they list their home? What should people think about before they set out to buy a home? What's the general state of the market in New York today and how is it changing? Um, what are the mistakes that buyers are making? What are the mistakes that sellers are making? All this is covered in uh, an extensive chat with Alex, which I'm sure you'll find very interesting. So um, sit back, relax, and I bring you Alex Magoo. Hey, Alex. How are you doing? Hey, Simon. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. So um, you uh, work for Compass Real Estate, and you are a real estate broker in New York City. And um, if I come to you and tell you, uh, Alex, I'm beginning to think about buying some real estate. What are you going to tell me are the uh, are the first steps I need to take in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. You know, step one for sure would be to talk to your financial advisor uh, and make sure they, they give you the thumbs up on that. And, uh, you know, realistically speaking, step two would be to speak to a mortgage banker or mortgage broker. Um, you know, everyone has a different sense for quote unquote what they can afford. Uh, and I never want to be in a position telling someone, oh, yeah, you could spend more, you know, let's spend less. Uh, I don't want you to push yourself. Uh, the best person to really, you know, delve into someone's finances and decide, you know, what they're capable of buying, what they can afford is going to be that mortgage banker because most people are, uh, are doing some type of financing. They're getting a mortgage, a loan from a bank. Okay. Uh, beyond that, I really think it's important for people to start poking around virtually. Uh, it will give you a nice snapshot of what the market looks like. You know, you can look at pictures. You can see different prices, different types of properties. You can zoom into different neighborhoods and just kind of get a feel in a sense. Uh, but, but realistically speaking, that's what it is. It's a small taste. It's a small feel. Uh, I've worked with so many clients where online something looks like a slam dunk. And then when you see it in person, it's a dump. Uh, and then also, also vice versa, where something online looks kind of so-so. And then all of a sudden you're walking around in person and there's just a lot of potential there. But, you know, this process takes time. Uh, so I love working with buyers uh, when they have time, do you know? Uh, and, and you need to kind of understand the seasonality of the market. You know, there are certain months where more listings come to the market. And, uh, you know, if you start looking in December to buy something, there might not be a lot of listings out there. Uh, a lot of brokers take listings down during the holidays. A lot of owners wait to list their uh, properties for a spring market or a fall market, which is, tends to be busier. Now, beyond that, I also think it's important for buyers to understand the, the culture of the market they're in. 
you know, some markets, everything's listed high and there's room to negotiate. And some markets, things are listed low because it's a soft market and sellers just want to sell. So fully understanding, you know, what you're dealing with in regards to the market culture. And then I always like my buyers to be prepared. Even if we're just getting started, you never know. If you fall in love with something, you need to be ready to act. Uh, this is a market that moves very quickly. There are very serious competitors here. Uh, so you need to be prepared. And what that means is having uh, a financial summary. Uh, it's basically a, a one-page form or two-page form that outlines your assets, your liabilities, your income. It basically is a quick snapshot for a seller and a broker to see who you are, uh, what your financial situation is, because that's going to impact you know, your wherewithal to get a mortgage. And the other document that's usually required is that mortgage pre-approval, which comes from the bank, which is basically the bank's um, you know, tentative promise to, to loan you a certain amount of money based on, you know, reviewing your finances or a person's finances. Then the last bit I would say is, is having a real estate attorney ready. Uh, again, it's, you know, you can get a referral from your broker, you can get a referral from a friend, someone that had a really positive experience and just having that person ready. Because again, uh, if you walk into your dream home and you're ready to buy it, you know, you want to be ready. <laughs> you don't mm -hmm. want to be in a situation where you're scrambling and, and, and multiple offers are coming in. And because you're not prepared, you lose out on what was uh, a perfect apartment for you. That's interesting. You, you, just go back uh, to those um, virtual resources that you mentioned. Can you just give us a couple of examples of where people could go to um, to get those virtual resources? Yeah, absolutely. So at Compass, we actually have this really amazing tool called Collections, which has been described as like almost like a Pinterest for real estate. You know, you have all of the information on a really easy to use online interface where you're seeing images of properties, you're seeing floor plans, you're seeing descriptions. And what's great about this online interface is you can add your own listings. If you see something on the market that, um, you know, maybe you're walking by or a friend sent you something or whatever it might be, you can add it. So, you know, I can see what's going on, but I can also add listings. You can take listings out. You can comment on the listings. It's just really nice uh, in regards to the level of engagement and um, interactiveness, if you will, which I, I think makes the process a little bit more fun uh, and easy. Beyond that, there are a lot of online aggregators which will share the properties available in a certain region. StreetEasy, StreetEasy.com is probably the go-to here in New York City. Uh, you know, I think they came along about eight years ago and they really, really kind of become the, the go-to uh, for people who are looking um, to buy and, and, and where, where sellers are also are listing. But, you know, beyond that, there's the New York Times, you know, Curb.com will have listings. Uh, there, Zillow and Trulia, um, you know, in, in the New York market, uh, you know, they're all owned by the same company. Zillow owns Trulia and owns Street Easy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they definitely have a monopoly on this uh, real estate business nationwide. But for whatever reasons, in New York City, Trulia and Zillow tend to have outdated uh, data. And what that means is something sold two years ago, but it's still showing as an active home um, right. or something's been taken off the market. But again, it's still showing as an active home. I think part of that is their goal is to have the most listings uh, and to be the go-to spot. But in New York, it's going to be street easy. Good to know. Good to know. How about on the other side of the equation? So the seller, we've talked a lot about uh, buyers already. What about the seller? So 
you make a decision that you're going to sell your property. Um, you've already alluded, you've already mentioned some of the seasonality that's involved. Uh, there are obviously um, optimal and suboptimal times to put an apartment or a house on the market. Um, but what are some of the other things other than just pure timing? What are the other things a seller needs to think about before they list their home? Yeah, great question. And this is a very interesting market. Uh, you know, every market's different and markets move. Uh, to the upside and to the downside. So I think it's really important for the seller just to understand, to have the data and the knowledge of, of what they're dealing with. You know, this is a market that seems to be sliding down. So if you're looking at data from six, nine, 12 months ago, you know, your, 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 your friend, your neighbor sold their apartment for X, Y, Z. I should get at least that much or more because I'm on a higher floor or better view or better renovation. That may not be the case. Uh, you know, and we really have to understand uh, the, the data and, and what the market is telling us. Again, you may think your apartment's worth 1.5, but if the data is telling us the apartment's worth 1.2, uh, all we're doing is wasting time. OK, mm -hmm. uh, people in, in, in this market today, and I do think generally speaking, they're not inclined to buy a fixer upper. OK, most people do not have the patience or, or, or the, the technical wherewithal or emotional wherewithal to deal with a heavy renovation. So, again, timing is key for, for sellers. You know, sometimes you decide to sell because you just got a new job. You have to leave in a month. You don't really have time to, to strategize. If you will, you just got to be gone. Uh, but in situations where you do have time, where maybe you want to sell in, in, in a year from today, there are some things I think a, a seller should think about. Doing renovation, um, any kind of investment that a, a, a seller and owner puts into their property, they should get out a 3x. You know, for example, so if you spend $15,000 on, uh, you know, some minimal renovation, it should yield uh, or turn into a 45K gain on the sales price. Uh, it, it will just change the perception of a buyer. You know, people like nice things. People like new cars. They like, you know, new homes. It's just an, a nicer feel than trying to understand what is potential or trying to understand what are the unknown costs in renovating a kitchen or renovating a bathroom. Okay. Now in a situation where a seller, you know, I don't, I'm not going to pay to renovate my bathroom and I'm leaving. Okay. Uh, there are other things that you can do to make a home look great. Uh, and I think right now in, in this particular market and in, in this time, uh, 2018 staging, I mean, I guess it's always kind of been there, but it, I, I think it's just taken on a, a, a tremendous uh, art form. It's a craft. Uh, and I have, a, you know, I know a lot of uh, interior designers and stagers who they craft an emotional feel. You know, they create uh, a world, a, a life in a home that, you know, with your particular taste in furniture is maybe not uh, the imagined home you want to create for a new buyer. There's something right. about being neutral. There's something about just kind of uh, being open-ended where people can see themselves in the home and not see your junk or, you know, your, 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 uh, you know, your messy closets or whatever it might be. So again, if that seller is, you know, moving across country for a new job, you might, you know, I might be in a position to advise them, you know, take everything out and let's stage the home, you know, and then it's going to make it just look more appealing. Um, you know, so these are the kinds of things that I think is important just to understand the market, you know, review data, understand how you're pricing and just to make the home look as appealing as possible, whether that be through staging or any type of renovation, doing a simple paint job, 
You know, mm-hmm. spending two or three days to do a brand new paint job, maybe it costs $5,000, easily could cr- increase the, the, the value of the home, 15, 20. Uh, you know, people like nice, and it's important just to give them that. Good advice, I think. Um, so, um, New York City. New York City is a little different than North Dakota, right? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> when it comes to real estate. Um, so generally, how, how is New York City looking today? And what are the particular New York-centric type considerations that need to be made? And I guess I'm referring there to um, the proliferation of co-ops versus condos versus single-family homes. There's a wider choice of, uh, I guess, uh, accommodation structure than there may be in other parts of the country. So how, how's New York City looking today? Yeah, it's it's it, like I said earlier uh, or alluded to earlier. This is a market that seems to be on the downside, uh, moving downward, if you will. And you know, there are, I guess there are multiple reasons for why that's happening. I think over the past few years, prices got kind of really, really hot. Uh, sellers got kind of greedy. I mean, two years ago, I helped a seller uh, sell a home that he bought in I think 2010 for something like a 800k profit. You know, so uh, there was a dark time, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, where people were getting deals and steals and and getting apartments for half the value uh, of what they might be worth, uh, you know, generally, intrinsically, if you will. And uh, but what we're seeing now is, you know, the the most uh, listings Street Easy has ever had. Uh, which I think is kind of crazy, uh, but it just speaks to the level of supply outpacing demand. We saw 800 price drops post Labor Day. So, you know, in the past uh, 30 days, let's say 800 price drops. Uh, that's the most since 2006. Uh, you know, the valuation of this market looks more like 2013, 2014. Uh, we have less contracts uh, going out, less closings happening, um, you know, a, you know, a, a completed sale of a, of a home being a closing. Um, so it, it's a little bit tough uh, to be a seller, uh, but that's why it's really important to look at that data and understand uh, how you're positioning your property. Alex, um, is you, that, sorry to interrupt, is that, yeah. is that across all price points is that across all structures co-ops condos half million dollar studios seven what? million dollar luxury apartments is this yeah you seeing this everywhere yes so uh it's p- pandemic uh you know it, it is happening at every level you know in new york we kind of talk about i think three different categories of prices uh for property there's the under million dollar market there's a one to three million dollar market and then there's kind of what is usually known as like an uber luxury market, which is the three million and above. And we're seeing, you know, more supply at every level, uh, lower prices at every level. Uh, I would say on the higher end, uh, you know, a lot of these buildings um, that people started building five years ago, let's say, or two years ago, they bought the land, uh, seeing that the market was zooming, and now that all these homes. Um, are coming to the market at the same time, you know, the, the Uber luxury, the, the 30, 40, 50 million dollar, you know, four or five beds, you know, full floors, epic, you know, location or epic amenities close to Central Park or, you know, tall uh, high rise luxury. It, it, it's kind of unfortunate. It's that kind of idea of groupthink that everyone's doing the, the same thing. Uh, and then when all of these uh, apartments come to market, there's just not the demand to kind of soak them up. 
Right. Uh, and, w- and what's been happening over the past year, you know, why, you know, why, beyond sellers getting greedy and the prices getting too hot, why are buyers kind of taking a pause? And uh, the, the tax bill that was rushed in last year at the end of the year, you know, I know um, the, the government, the Congress wants to pretend like it was a, a victory. But for regular buyers, you know, regular New Yorkers, doctors, uh, investment bankers, people like that, it, it raises a lot of question marks. Uh, people just do not know their tax liability. You know, accountants are still, you know, reading the bill and trying to understand what was scribbled in the margins. So mm-hmm. that's been a, a big reason why people are just taking a step back. Uh, they want to see what their tax bill looks like next year. And regardless of where someone stands politically, uh, you know, all of the, the, the kind of negative foreign immigrant rhetoric coming out of Washington, I think, has given, you know, folks from China and Brazil and Russia uh, just a little bit of pause. Like, is, is this a market, the American market, a place that I really want to bring my dollars when I can invest in, in great places in, in Canada, for example, mm-hmm. Toronto or Vancouver or whatever it might be. Um, you know, so that this is a long-winded kind of answer to talk about the market, but I think it is important to understand the market that we're dealing with. So for a seller, it, it is a tough market uh, and strategy and, and, and putting the best foot forward and, and showcasing a property in the best light is vital. But now on the other end, if you're a buyer, what an amazing market to be in. All right. Uh, you have prices coming down. I, you know, two years ago, I used to get emails every day. Uh, best and final, highest and best offers due by Wednesday. Uh, these were bidding wars and multiple <laughs> offers coming in. The emails I get daily are new price, price reduction, price improvement. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's just kind of funny to see those swings. But you know, you're you're a finance guy. You're a financial advisor. I'm a big believer in people like Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett has a great quote, uh, you know, when others are fearful, be greedy. And when others are greedy, be fearful. And I think this is a market where people are being fearful, but it's an opportunity for, for the savvy buyer to be a little bit greedy and see that there's opportunities in the marketplace, depending on what they need and depending on what they're looking for. Um, you know, so I, I think that gives you like a nice little snapshot of the market. Now, to go back to your, your question about co-ops versus condos. Um, you know, in single family homes, New York City, like you said, is not North Dakota. Uh, it's a very unique marketplace. And here uh, we have a, a large supply of co-ops, of cooperative homes. Uh, probably that supply is about 75 uh, percent of the of the housing stock in New York are, are cooperatives. And basically what that means is instead of buying real property, as you would in a condo, instead of owning the real property, what ends up happening is you get... Uh, shares uh, that are part of a corporation and you get a proprietary lease to reside in that specific apartment. Okay. Uh, It sounds a little bit complicated, but for the actual day to day of your life, it's essentially very similar. You know, you live in a home, you you pay taxes and, and mortgage payments and common charges to run a building you know, for the heating, and, you know, the maintenance and uh, the, the upkeep of the building. Uh, but the thing about a, a cooperative that I think is a main difference for buyers uh, and, and people who are going to, you know, consider both options is there tends to be certain rules um, that prevent people from doing whatever they want. So, for example, in a co-op, they're going to limit your ability to rent out the home. A lot of times co-ops are going to only allow two years of rental out of five years. 
Uh, and usually that's the maximum. So what does that mean? If you can't live in the home and you can't rent it after those two years, you're going to have to sell it uh, or let it sit vacant. Uh, a a co-op has um, significant say in who gets into the building. They can reject an applicant and not tell you why, uh, which in 2018 in the world of tra transparency seems kind of weird. Very. A little bit arcane, but uh, it, it is the process today, which can also make it a frustrating process, right? You're a buyer. You've been looking for six months. You finally find uh, the home of your dreams. It's a co-op. You go through the process as best as you can. And at the very end of the process, they go, I'm sorry, you've been rejected. It's a rarity. It tends not to happen. Why? Because the, the buyer's broker is not going to submit a weak package. <laughs> the seller uh, and the seller's broker are not going to accept a weak buyer. But it does happen. Um, you know, a, a co-op is going to ask a lot of times for a much stronger uh, buyer financially. And what that means is putting down more for the mortgage, usually 25 or 30 percent. Uh, or sometimes they won't even allow you to get a mortgage to, if, if it's a super high-end kind of uh, elite co-op. Because they, the, the people they want in the building, they want them to be financially secure. God forbid anything ever happens. There's a flood or a leak. And they want these people to be able to take care of their responsibility. Right. Um, condos are great, though, if you want to buy an investment. You're going to rent it out every year. The condo is really not going to stand in the way. Uh, if you end up selling your condo in 10 years after owning it, they're really not going to stand in the way of you sell, selling it to a particular buyer, regardless of, you know, they might not like that person's a drummer or a rapper or something like that, but they're going to have really limited claim uh, to stopping that person from coming in. So people who are international, people who have maybe limited paper trail covering their finances, uh, they're going to really like being in a condo because a condo is going to be less invasive. Uh, the co-op usually also has an interview. They're going to want to meet with the buyers and understand who these people are. Uh, the, again, these, these interviews tend to be a formality, but they can be stressful events for, for anyone. Uh, and a condo is not going to have that. So uh, as a pure investment, I, I think condos makes a lot of sense, especially if you think you're going to be leaving New York in a couple of years. Uh, and if you really want to have the, the freedom and the flexibility to rent out the property and be able to sell it to whoever you want. You know, so uh, and then the last thing I would say, you know, you kind of brought up single family, uh, you know, in New York, hypothetically, a co-op would be a single family unit. Right. Uh, a, a condo would be a single family unit. But people also are looking at townhouses. That would be the other type of housing stock here in the city. And what, what's great about a townhouse is they tend to have a lower tax liability. Uh, they have a lower price per square foot. So it is a pretty great bang for your buck. You know, they tend to be pretty expensive. Uh, so you do need to be in a specific category to be able to even buy for them. But, uh, you know, you also can be in a situation where you can rent out of the basement unit, if you will, and then get out some type of income uh, on your home, which is just kind of like a big plus. So, you know, you, you have some options there. But for the buyer, I, I think uh, they shouldn't be scared of that co-op condo difference. Uh, just understand uh, what's expected of them and understand what the restrictions or limitations are. And um, the old traditional uh, criteria for real estate is, uh, is location, location, location. So within, the, within, within New York City, within, or let's say within the five boroughs, what neighborhoods um, seem attractive to you right now? You know, it's an interesting market. As I mentioned, it seems like prices are sliding. But the thing that I always tell buyers uh, that I work with is the things that you like are the things that probably other people are going to like. Light, 
view, space, you know, ideal location. And that probably means close to restaurants and bars and shops and transit. But that being said, there are certain neighborhoods that I think are just seeing greater demand, you know, more buyers looking in those areas, which, you know, if supply is constant or, or even going up slightly, you know, more demand should also kick up price. And where I'm seeing um, those kind of price appreciation gains happening, Harlem and upper Manhattan, Washington Heights, as silly as it might sound, uh, Lynn manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, which has been a big hit. Uh, I have not, I have not seen the show, uh, but I've heard good things about it. And, you know, but essentially my understanding is it's a show, it's a show kind of about immigrants and, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda previously wrote uh, a musical called In the Heights that was all about Washington Heights, uh, which at one time was a very Dominican kind of neighborhood. But that's a neighborhood, you know, of, of, in upper Manhattan, you know, in the 160s, if you will, and going up to like the 180s and up there in Inwood in the 200s. It, it's an area of the city that is kind of beautiful. You still have access to transit. I mean, you're a little bit further out. But again, this idea of bigger bang for your buck. Uh, you know, seeing tremendous kind of price gains up there. That, that Harlem area that I had mentioned previously, you know, you have Columbia that is on the bottom of that, you know, in the 100s up to like 110, 115. They've done a lot of investment in the area with new buildings and just, you know, beautification. People like nice things. People like being in a nice neighborhood. And when you have, you know, smart college educated people living in a neighborhood, you have professors and, and administrative staff that live in the neighborhood, you know, that's creating a type of demand there that I think is also increasing prices. All of the construction happening on the west side of Manhattan over by the, the Hudson Yards, I think that's fundamentally transforming the city. You know, it was an area that was pretty ugly uh, and undesirable, mm -hmm. but, you know, in 10 years with these epic towers and again, with these big businesses, with the beautification of the neighborhoods and the blocks and adding parks. Uh, I do, you know, West Chelsea and, and Midtown West, a lot of possibility over there. Uh, and then in last kind of neighborhood in Manhattan, I would say is Lower East Side. Lower East Side was this grungy, you know, kind of scary neighborhood that now has uh, high rises, luxury buildings coming to market. And something else that's been a phenomenon nationally is this idea of the food hall. Uh, this kind of epic space where there's yes. multiple shops. You know, there's one in, in, in Columbus Circle that opened up a couple of years ago. There's a few uh, here in Brooklyn, close to me where I live. Yeah, I know of a couple near Grand Central. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but they're, they're building a huge uh, new food hall, recreational facility uh, in the Lower East Side. It's going to have like a, a, a movie theater and a bowling alley and shops and you know, restaurants and sh little boutique uh, food spots. And, you know, people love that. You know, people love a neighborhood and love being able to go out. And for sure, the Lower East Side has a nightlife that's very exciting. But maybe it, it lacks some of this housing supply that, that is changing. And then the last thing I'll, I'll say, you know, we've kind of talked a lot about the, Manha the Manhattan market softening and there being a lot of uh, options out there. The Brooklyn market, I think, is much stronger in a lot of ways. But the reason behind that is I just think that the price point is lower. You know, it's kind of like the bell curve. Uh, if the average too bad here in Brooklyn is, you know, between 1.1 and 1.5, you just have more buyers looking at that price point uh, than like a, a 2 to 2.5 million for a two bed in Manhattan. 
So I think the, the Brooklyn market has been, I think, much better. And I, you know, any of these neighborhoods that are immediately close to Manhattan, Brooklyn Heights, downtown Brooklyn, Cobble Hill, Borum Hill, Carroll Gardens, and to maybe a, a lesser extent, Fort Greene and Clinton Hill, they have just a, a lot to like. Beautiful blocks, beautiful brownstones, great restaurants, boutiques, shops, a lot of transit. I mean, some of these neighborhoods have 10 trains. Uh, and that's almost unheard of. So uh, I think buying in any of those neighborhoods would be, you know, a pretty good move. And then the last place I'll, I'll, I'll kind of mention quickly is Queens. I'm not a Queens expert, but I have done some business there. Long Island City, uh, I think it's kind of saturated at this point. It's gotten a little bit too hot, but I think a little bit further out, places like Astoria and Sunnyside, Queens, I think they're almost untouched uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, and maybe the address, I think, throws people because they have the little dash. I don't know if you've seen that, but for, I think, anyone, anyone coming from Manhattan or Brooklyn, it's like, why are there two numbers? <laughs> uh, you know, so maybe that's part of it. But again, there are opportunities in the marketplace. And again, it's going to be in line with what people want and what people need. Uh, but there are opportunities, and I think that's exciting. That's great. Really good info there, Alex. Thank you. Um, all right. All of us in our respective professions have war stories. We have uh, we shake our heads at the actions of some of our clients. I know uh, that's happened to me. It's happened to the accountants I work with, lawyers, and everybody else. I'm sure it's happened with you. Do you want to share a couple of um, a couple of stories, obviously uh, discreetly, um, of some mistakes that either a seller or a buyer has made that could serve as a good warning to uh, somebody just getting into this process? Yeah, very good. A huge question. Uh, mistakes cost time and money, so let's avoid them. Uh, I want to talk about something that's going on right now, and uh, most likely it's a listing that I will be releasing as of Friday, um, you know, because uh, the seller and uh, myself, we're just in different places, um, you know, in regards to strategy, if you will. And, and, and just simply, this is an, an apartment that on a perfect day is probably worth $2.2 million. All right. And we originally came to the market above that level, which in a sliding market, it was probably not a good idea. But look, uh, I wanted to give this particular seller the opportunity to get full value out of the home. This is someone I've known for almost 10 years and now highly respect. So I, I want to do a good job by them. Um, you know, but and, and I'll say we listed this property in January, and I don't think anyone in Manhattan really fully understood the slowdown that was about to happen. But what we what I saw in, in the first few months was, you know, people were not vibing with this home. It's a little bit of an older renovation. It's on a higher floor, but it kind of looks into the mechanicals of the building across the street. Some of the view is obstructed. We need some renovation work. There's carpeting in the apartment. Uh, the closets, hack parquet, but there's hardwood uh, floors in, in, in the apartment. Uh, the washer and dryer was put in a very awkward place. Uh, this was a vacant home. We staged it, which was great, which really helped kind of uh, move the eye away from some of the issues in the apartment and got them to, to focus on the possibility. Oh, this could be a great bedroom uh, for, for a child or a good office or whatever it might be. Uh, and... You know, as we move along, it became very clear that we needed to make fundamental changes to the apartment and renovation. Why? Because no one coming in wanted to do a renovation. So I told them in March, I, I really think we need to redo the floors. 
Um, and again, maybe this is a $20,000 cost, but I promise you it's going to yield $60,000 in gains and value on the sale price. And, you know, he demurred and didn't want to do it. Uh, you know, I asked him to you know, maybe relocate the washer and dryer and didn't want to do it. And that was in March. And then we started lowering the price and lowering the price and lowering the price. And now we're in a situation where it's listed at $2 million. We've come down, you know, $340,000 from where we originally listed it. And we're in a position where people still walk in and they shake their head and they don't want it. You know why? Because they think there's too much work. I know it's not too much work. The seller knows it's not too much work because he, he's a real estate guy. Uh, but here we are in a tough situation where uh, if he spent the twenty to sixty thousand dollars to get the apartment up to snuff, uh, I think we would have sold this five times already. You know, so it, it's really tough. It's really tough. Um, you know, but I understand it's an it's an emotional process. No one wants to leave money on the table, but these are the, the the sincere, serious, honest types of conversations that you need to have with your advisor, you know, and that's who I am. Uh, it's not my job to lie to you and say, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to sell it, you know, like just keep it going. No, uh, this is a scary time in this market, and if you want to be a seller and you want to unload a, a property, you have to be positioned appropriately on the price point, but also on presentation, right? So that's one thing that's happening right now. Uh, another situation uh, that I think um, is, is important for sellers to consider is, is just that pricing. So I had a property last year that I put on the market. I believe the right number was nine nine nine, you know, just under a million dollars. It creates a lot of attention, attraction. It seems quote unquote more affordable from like a psychological level. That's why things are one ninety nine and not two dollars. <laughs> you know, it looks cheaper. It looks more affordable. And I really want to go to nine nine nine. But I said to the seller, "Look, I will support a price between ten fifty and nine nine nine. You know, wherever you want to price it. And look, she wanted to price it at ten fifty, and, and I get that." You know, we came to market and it's an imperfect home. You know, it's a two bed, two bath, but the second bedroom has no windows. The second bedroom is, uh, you know, stuffy and, and can be dark. You know, for someone to spend over a million dollars on something like that was a little bit of a push. And what ended up happening is things were just kind of, you know, people were coming and seeing it and, and okay, you know, kind of okay about it, but there wasn't this excitement. It didn't seem like a deal. It seemed like, yeah, it's okay. And, you know, we ended up, I think, lowering it to 1025. And then I think we ended up lowering it to 999. And right when we got to 999, that's when we got more, more traction and more traffic. Ended up getting a couple of offers a little bit lower and ended up closing at 975. Okay. But, you know, I, I bring up this story because I just wonder if we listed it at 999, would we have gotten something higher? Because then we would have gotten a it would have just been slightly busier. The people who are like, it's over a million. I don't want to see it, you know, and it creates this kind of energy. So I think it's important, you know, when right. you're a seller to create the, the, a feeding frenzy, to create a, a sense of desire and want versus, you know, overpriced and they're out of their minds and this, right. this is not a good home. Uh, but the, the, the opposite coin of that is recently I listed something for 999 uh, and again, the seller always wants more, but I thought this was strategically the right move to make. You know, within a week, we had multiple offers uh, and we ended up taking something above the asking price, you know. But again, if we had listed at 1050, would we still be showing today? Very, very, I, I think so. I think so. You know, but I think that it's just really important to kind of price in line with the market uh, and understanding what you're dealing with. 
You know, again, if you have something, you know, that is just a slam dunk, uh, I'll give you another example. As I was working with buyers and something was, was listed at 700K in a very, very desirable neighborhood and the open house was packed, you know, and this was probably about six months ago. And this was in Brooklyn, which again is, I think, just a stronger market. There must have been 40 people there when I was there. And we ended up winning the bidding war because we understood that this was a great property and that we would have to bid above the asking price. So we went in with a very aggressive, strong bid at 740. You know, so again, we're, we're not breaking the bank, um, but we are paying for what is value. And I think that's important. I mean, everyone is always like, I need a deal. I need a steal. And, <laughs> you know, the, the deal is the home that works. The deal is the home that you get. You know, I've been in situations with buyers where we, we get, you know, I was in a situation with a buyer where I told him to submit an offer $130,000 above the asking. And he looked at me like I was crazy. But I looked at the data and I saw that the seller and the seller's broker listed at a, a, a low, low, low number that made no sense. Okay. I'm sure the broker, the seller's broker got offers, you know, 10K above the ask and, and, and 20K above the ask. And those brokers uh, and buyers thought that they would win. Uh, but what's crazy about that situation is even going 130K above, we ended up losing. Okay. And what I said to my buyer, I said, look, if someone wanted to overpay for the apartment, so be it. So the person that ended up winning uh, spent $215,000 above the asking. Wow. You know, which I think was overpaying for the home. I'm not in a position to encourage anyone to overpay. Um, but but that, that's why we dig into data and that's why we talk about value. Um, but he just moved. We, we did win something else. Uh, too bad, too bad with a balcony and a parking spot in uh, an you know, elevator doorman building. And uh, I just saw him for dinner on uh, Tuesday and uh, he's very happy. He loves the neighborhood. And uh, he's pleased. But, you know, some of this is fateful, too. Like, uh, you know, he really loved the other apartment that we lost out on. But I do think what he ended up finding and what we ended up winning the bidding war on is almost a better fit for him and almost kind of serendipitous and fateful. So, you know, part of my job is uh, almost kind of being a life coach or, you know, a, a sense of, uh, po- you know, a ball of positivity because these are emotional situations and it's demoralizing to be right on the cusp of getting your dream home and then finding out that someone else was selected, (laughs) you know? So how do you come back from that? How do you come back from that? And um, it's about staying positive and understanding that there is some kind of component of luck and there is uh, some kind of component of the meant to be. So, yeah, so, uh, yeah. And you have to be a little bit philosophical about this stuff too. (laughs) It's interesting. I was listening to what you were saying about the um, about the attitudes of the sellers, and it's very familiar to me. There's a very known uh, and documented um, financial behavior called uh, the endowment effect. So basically what it means is they conducted an experiment whereby they got a load of people into a room, gave half of them a pencil and the other half a cheap mug, uh, and then asked them how, at what price they would sell the pencil that they own versus what price they would pay for the mug they don't own. So there's two, you know, 
completely innocuous possessions, um, what basically it showed was the moment you own something, your perception of its value gets distorted upwards. Uh, and when you're in a situation where you're attempting to buy something, your perception is not always strategic. It's actually perceptive. Your perception of that goes down. So the average person said, I'll sell my pencil for a dollar, but I'm only paying you 50 cents for, the, for a mug. And the mug guy says exactly the same thing. And these are, these are possessions they've owned for 30 seconds. Wow. So this is a known, and it, you know, it can move forward into the idea with stocks, right? You own a stock. Yes, very much. You've owned much. Apple for a year. You, 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 you don't care what the stock market says it's worth. It, it, to your mind, it's worth far more than that. So there's, it's a known endowment effect. And I, when you were talking about the, what appeared to be unreasonableness of sellers, uh, you know, I perceive that effect right there. Yeah, very much so. The, the funny thing about comparing it to the stock market is the stock market has these gyrations almost daily, right? Uh, right. A stock could be down 5 or 10%, and then the, the couple days. I mean, what Tesla <laughs> this past week, I mean, it was down 15%, and then somehow is up, and you know, the CEO was about to be taken off. Uh, so it's just kind of to, to funny to see. But now we're talking about someone's home. So much, even much more emotional, and and you know they 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 did the renovation five years ago, and this is a great room for my my daughter, and you know they're gonna right. love it here, and the neighborhood's great, and the staff, and you know, but it, it's hard to convey all of that to someone who's walking in uh, without a sense of urgency. Is, I mean, that 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 that's just touches on another behavior, the whole sunk cost yes fallacy. Yes. I paid I paid ten dollars for this stock. I don't care, you know, now it's worth eight. I'm going to wait until it gets to $10.01 before I sell it because I've sunk $10 into yeah. it. Well, the stock market doesn't give a crap. Yeah, it doesn't. Paid for it. Uh, <laughs> and it makes no sense to have, have what you paid for it or the money you've put into it as a factor in where you'll sell it. It's just stupid. Yeah, it's really uh, quite crazy. But it's just like what you just said. Oh, you know, I put, five years ago, I, I, I renovated the bathroom. Well, you know, the buyer doesn't give a shit, right? The buyer <laughs> doesn't care. It's a five-year-old bathroom. <laughs> so um, I'm going to move towards wrapping, wrapping this up. Yeah, of course. Great. Um, just a little bit more about you. Um, and I think uh, anyone listening here will, will have noticed or will have realized um, that you have a passion for what you do. Um, but what else separates you from your competitors? And if somebody wants to get in touch and get more information about this, um, this market, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, great, great. Uh, I would be happy to share all of that. You know, uh, yeah, I'm very passionate about the work that I do. And, you know, real estate is very interesting. And it's such a joy to see different neighborhoods and different property types and to meet all different types of people. So, you know, it's a very exciting type of job. But, you know, I really, truly care about people. To me, it's always about the client experience. You know, again, if I'm working for a seller or if I'm working for a buyer or even a renter, uh, it's about making sure that they have a positive experience. Why? Because that's how I would like to be treated. You know, if I go to a restaurant, you know, I can't, I, that, that's how I would compare uh, the broker, right? Uh, I can't control the types of properties that are out there. I can't control uh, what, what the other seller broker does or, you know, some of these, the, the, what the food tastes like and, and all of that. 
but I can make sure that I can answer all of your questions. I can kind of help guide you on the menu, uh, you know, try to help you avoid certain pitfalls. That's not a good option. I think you should pick something else. I could highlight, you know, great options, but I'm a firm uh, part of the experience that someone comes out of the buying or selling process. So it's just really important to me that I take care of people, which I think, you know, is better than maybe, you know, 90% of the brokers out there who are kind of focused on a commission check. Beyond that, you know, I'm a fun guy. Uh, like I said, this process can be emotional and, and there are downtimes and uptimes. And I think it's just nice to have someone along the way that can be a partner that can be, you know, motivational when you need to hear a pep talk. Uh, but someone that also understands data and, and knows analysis and can really provide, you know, numerical information for you to make a decision because this is a lot of money and you want to make sure that the, the decision is vetted and that it makes sense in, in, in line with the market data that we're seeing. And um, I always work hard for my clients, which I think is vital. Uh, I take it really personally. It's, it's as if I'm selling my home. It's as if I'm buying my home. Uh, you know, I really care. And I just think that makes a difference. If people want to get in touch with me, uh, going to my websites, I, I think a great first step, www.alex, A-L-E-X. And my last name's Magoob and like Mary, A-H-G-O-U-B, like boy.com. There you can read client testimonials. You can see some current deals. I have some video content on there. So it's a nice way to kind of get an, another introduction to me, if you will. Uh, and and I, the, the thing that I always want to make clear to people is I'm always happy to have a conversation. I'm always happy to have a chat. They may already be working with a broker that they're really happy with. But maybe they want a second opinion. Um, or they have someone that they really are probably going to sell with, but they want me to come in and give my feedback and advice. I'm happy to do that. You know, again, this to me is not transactional. This is relational. To me, this is about helping people and making a difference in people's lives. And again, maybe I don't get the, the, the specific transaction or whatever, but they remember me. That guy was great and he was really nice <laughs> and really caring. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my, you know, my friend Joe's looking to buy something. I'm going to send them Alex, you know. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that's probably the best way to go about it. Alex, thank you so much for this. I think there's been uh, some invaluable information on here. I will put uh, all those links you mentioned uh, onto the notes uh, for the podcast. So anybody listening to the podcast can scroll down. And uh, I'm also on Instagram. I forgot to say that. At Alex Magoob. You can watch me maneuvering the city and, and, and posting some cool stuff up there. <laughs> well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, Alex. At the, uh, after we finish up here, send me an email with all the uh, particular links. On okay, I will. They're okay. associated with, this, with the notes for this podcast. Yeah, of course, of course. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, it was so much fun. I didn't know it was going to be this much fun. I'm sorry if I'm a chatty Kathy. I wanted, I wanted to get a lot of info out there uh, to, just to make it valuable for people when, when they listen to this. That's, that's actually a response I get from a lot of the guests on this podcast is it was a lot less intimidating and a lot more fun than they... Uh, yes, very much. I'm so glad you do this. I downloaded all of your podcasts but I haven't listened to them yet. <laughs> uh, so I, I move in slow steps on this like side stuff, but uh, I, I will listen now, now that I have the, the inside experience, if you will. <laughs> Alex, thanks a lot. Listen, thanks for, yeah. thanks for listening, guys. And yes, thank you. I will be back with another, uh, another financial professional very soon. Thanks a lot. Take Beautiful. care. Thank you. Have a great day.